David Hershkovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Light Culture. My guest today is Be Real, best known for his work with Cypress Hill and the rap supergroup Prophets of Rage. Over the years, he's become a cannabis entrepreneur with his green thumb dispensaries selling his branded Insane Strain. Still touring, still making music, he's also a full-time content creator for his Be Real TV YouTube channel, his show Hotbox, personal favorite, and Green Thumb podcast. And God knows what else he's got cooking. A busy man, we're lucky to get him on our show today. Welcome, Be Real. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, my pleasure. You've been at the top of my get list since I started this show. I feel like I've hit a home run now of guests <laughs> who previously worked on Bong Appetit. You know, the now-canceled Vice TV show? Yeah. I've had Abdullah Saeed, Vanessa Lavarado, and Miguel Trinidad. And now I've got Be Real. Yeah. Right on. So what was it like working on Bong Appetit? Was that like a stretch for you? Did you feel comfortable there? I felt very comfortable. It was actually really fun. It was great to work with uh, Vanessa and Miguel for, for that season. And, uh, you know, I would totally work with both of them again, you know, even if we brought a whole different show back, you know, let, if, if Bong Appetit is, is not coming back in any form or, or any, on any other network, I would definitely want to work with them because I mean, they're, they're definitely, they definitely know what they're talking about in terms of culinary and cannabis infusion. And it was just fun working with them, man. It, it, the, the chemistry came quick. And I had a lot of fun. We got high as hell, too. <laughs> <laughs> They're two of my favorite people. And, you know, I would definitely advocate for you guys doing something together. You know, should get on it right away. I know Vanessa, she's she's ready for it. Oh, yeah. Are you a cannabis foodie as well as a connoisseur of strains? I was back before the explosion in terms of, uh, you know, everybody really getting into the culinary aspect of it. I definitely was. But then, you know, I started getting more into, you know, just about flour, you know, not even so much concentrates. I mean, I got into that a little bit, but I was more so a flour consumer. And uh, when the opportunity to do Bong Appetit came along, I thought that was something that I could do. So now that we have it under our belt and we've done it and we know the formula and how it works, you know, yeah, the three of us could fucking smash it out the park. I bet. Well, you mentioned you're more into flour. Uh, does that as a consumer or as a businessman? Uh, as a consumer. I mean, as, as a businessman, I understand that, you know, everybody likes what they like. And, you know, some people don't like smoking flour. Some people rather do edibles or do tinctures and, or do concentrates. You know what I mean? And, and um, you know, we try to have something for everybody. Because, I mean, you know, it'd be ridiculous for me to just have what I like. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah. I think you have to have what everybody likes. And, and being that the, the cannabis culture base is so broad now, 
that you have to have something for everybody. Right. And that has changed because, you know, in the original, everything was personal, right? So you were driven right. by your own interests and passions. But now as a businessman, you have to like spread out a little bit beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. You have to think about that. It's, it's, it's beyond what you like. I mean, you like what you like and, and you could put that out there and pe- people that, you know, have the same passions or, or the same loves of the same things, they'll go to that. But, you know, if, if you only are putting that on your product line and, and that on your shelves and you're alienating all the other, you know, patients and, and consumers that, you know, want different things, they'll go other places for them if they have to. Now we've learned that there are more than two, you know, before it was joints and blunts, joints, blunts, pipes, joints, pipes, blunts, bongs. I mean, keeps you expanding. Know, it keeps expanding. And then, you know, right along with cannabis was the hash to smoke. So there was always those two particular options. Now there's so many different options. And, you know, people didn't know as much in terms of infusion into into whatever foods you were going to try to infuse it into. So, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of people that destroyed themselves for a day or two. <laughs> <laughs> when they were, you know, when we were first experimenting with all this, but now it's a science and everybody's got the dosages down, the dosing down, I believe, and the products that they're using are clean. And But my point is, is there's so many options for out, for the consumer out there, you know, because people, some people are just afraid to smoke. They'd rather drink it or, or consume it in, in some sort of edible. Let's uh, think about that in terms of music as well. Do you feel the same kind of options exist for you in that world? I think so, you know, because, I, I, you know, in, in terms of my musical career, I've been able to do a bunch of different things outside of what I did with Cypress Hill and what I continue to do with Cypress Hill. You know, we try to make that standalone and so far out of the box in terms of what everybody else might be doing and what we've done previously, you know, but that's a particular formula. And we've had this formula for over 28 years, going on 30 next year, actually. So musically, you know, I've had opportunities outside of Cypress Hill to do like more aggressive stuff, like with the Prophets of Rage, you know, which is, you know, it's got a hip hop sensibility, but, you know, it's driven by live instrumentation, which is more on the aggressive level. And sure, we got funky and stuff like that. But what that allowed me to do is is do more aggressive music and, and different sort of content that was political based. And, um, you know, it was a different flavor because people want to know what's going on. And at the least, that's that was my part of it, trying to let people know what's going on instead of saying, oh, well, I'm a liberal or I'm a Democrat or I'm I'm a Republican because I'm not any of those. And I just, you know, it's all a joke to me. But what I could do in that group was let people know what the fuck was going on in their communities and society and, you know, around the world with a lot of the crap that was going on before this virus came and flipped everything and changed the narrative on what everybody was paying attention to. And then with, with uh, my projects with my good friend, Burner, who uh, I've done three albums going on four with in the Prohibition series, you know, it allowed me to do a more polished type of rap sound, a more fun, relaxed, more celebratory than than 
trying to be political or trying to, you know, put you onto what's going on in the streets or, or any of that. So it's very different from what I do with Cypress, what I've done with Profits, and even in my solo stuff. So, you know, you can do one flavor for your whole career, but I think it's, it's great when, you know, you, you, you have a canvas up and you have all these different colors to work with and you, and you try these different colors. You know, in Cypress Hill, that really wasn't our path. It was all pretty much dark palette. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I tried to brighten things up in different things that I've done musically. So yes, it's very much about flavors, flavors and colors. Like music was always, they always equated it to color, you know, in terms of melodies and shit like that. The brightness of a melody can uplift a dark tone, can bring on melancholy and deep thought. And you, you never really fit in anyway, Cypress Hill. It didn't really, when it, when it came out, it didn't really seem to belong anywhere. You had a little bit the East Coast flavor. You had the West Coast. You had the, you know, the Hispanic, Chicano Cuban vibe as well in there. And some of your influences that I've seen you mention, for example, like Ram LZ, oh, yeah. uh, who you credit with getting some of your vocalizations out of, and even the Beastie Boys, you know, very East Coast as well from totally, you know, I don't even know how you even heard of Ram LZ. Oh, oh, well, see, fortunate, right? I call myself fortunate for that because here's the thing, right? Um, in, in Los Angeles, back in the in the eighties, in the early eighties, mid eighties, whatever, um, there was a there was a station called fifteen eighty KDAY on an AM band, and they were playing all the hip hop that was to be played at the time, and you know they played LA version of what rap was and all that stuff, but they also played a lot of the East Coast stuff because I mean that was the first hip hop music, so they would play all that old school hip with it wasn't necessarily old school back then right there <laughs> yeah, was, it, is there now. Was, <laughs> it is now <laughs> yeah. but they, they were playing all the shit that would build what hip-hop became most of it was was coming out of the east coast so we were very much influenced on east coast you know hip-hop but the the connection to realm lz that came through dj mugs because what a lot of people forget being that we're a Los Angeles-based hip-hop group, was it Muggs, our producer and DJ? Well, he's 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 more of our producer now than DJ, but he was originally from Flushing, Queens, and he came from New York. And when he moved to California, when I believe he was like 16, 17 years old, and he was bringing back records and mixtapes and stuff like that. And when we connected with him, which I believe I was 16 and he was, he was 17 going on 18. He had all those mixes from New York and he played them for us. And, you know, he'd come back and he go and, and he brought that wild style movie back to us, to Sen and I, you know, Sen, Sen is the oldest of us. So, you know, the three of us would get together at, at either Sen's crib or, or uh, Muggs's crib. And we'd look at the VHSs of, of the Wild Style movie and shit like that and other movies like this. And so we got put on to Remel Z through, you know, Muggs bringing us back those videos and those cassettes and, you know, just being able to absorb that, you know. So if it wasn't for Muggs bringing those, those things back, we would have caught him, you know, way late in the game. And who knows if, if we would have ever developed the style we developed, you know, because before, you know, yeah, there was the beasties and we fucking loved them, but you know, 
we were definitely on the Ram LZ before we knew who the Beasties were. And then the Beasties came along and they were doing a crazy way out style that wasn't necessarily like Ram LZ, but it was high pitched and, you know, a crazy high aggressive tone. And, you know, the, the listening to, to both Ram LZ and the Beastie Boys, that sort of just gave me the spring off. And, and I got to give credit also to, you know, and, and sometimes it pains me to do this, but Send Dog's brother Mello, because him and I were constantly fiddling with throwing Ram LZ verses back and forth. And he sort of gave me the idea to, to fuck with that, you know? So, you know, I got to give props to him for like, hey, why don't you try doing that shit like Ram LZ? Or we were writing a song and he said, hey, you know, why don't you try doing this song in this voice? And, uh, I, you know, I, I tried it and we thought it was trippy and, and that that birthed my style right there, you know? So it, it was fortunate to be able to have, have those records and have those mixed tapes because a lot of us in LA didn't have those that were coming from the East Coast. But, you know, we, we, were, we were fortunate to have Muggs who was going back and forth because... You know, he had his grandparents and his, his entire family living in Queens. So every few months or, or every, whenever he could, he would go back out and see them, you know. And this was before Cypress Hill. This is, you know, we didn't even have our name yet. We were still, like, figuring out how to do demos, you know. So this, this was very important, you know, material for us to listen to. The other thing he brought to us was this group called The Treacherous Three, which was Kumo D and uh, fuck, I forgot the, the two other legends in that group, but we're listening to them as well. And, and, and uh, man, look, they were such a big influence. Yeah. It's, it's so cool that you were onto all of that stuff from New York in that way. Uh, Ram LZ, I knew him. He was a friend. We did a tour together, not just me, but the, it's called the, the rap tour that went to Europe with the whole bunch of the great OGs from back then. And it was like a graffiti, hip-hop tour, Africa, Bambada, Grandmaster DST, Fab Five Freddy, Futura, you know, the Dandi. It was like an amazing time for me. And Ram LZ was, was on that as well. And I had many nights staying up with him, hearing some of his theories, because uh, I'm sure you know by now that he was an amazing artist as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, a genius fact. And, you know, the rapping was just like sort of a minor side thing. I mean, he created so much amazing artwork. Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of people don't know the connection until they hear his name through an interview. And, uh, you know, we, we would definitely praise him back, back when we were first starting. And, and they would ask, you know, what were our influences were. And, you know, we'd bust out Ram LZ. A lot of people were surprised. They're like, really? Yeah, like me. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, hell no, yeah. I, I love that. You yeah, know, I, I mean, think about it, right? Um, in the Wild Style song, he has a line that said, I shot up town to Cypress Hill, yeah, and I broke into a deaf Seville or some shit like this, right? Mm -hmm. But he says the line, Cypress Hill. And we lived on a block called, well, said dog lived on a block called Cypress Ave, where which avenue in Southgate where all of us congregated, all of us who were a part of the Cypress Hill Avenue clique, you know, like all of our friends, you know, we used to play sports together and, and it, you know, break dance and pop and all that stuff. Anything that was like a team thing, you know, 
the boys on Cypress Avenue, we, you know, we got together and we, we went and battled against other blocks in various sports and pop and, and break in culture. Right. And when we heard that, that, what, what Muggs brought back in that wild style record, and we heard fucking Ramel shout out a place called Cypress Hill, which is obviously in a, a up in East New York. We thought, boom, there goes our fucking name for our group. We're from Cypress Ave. We could just say we're on top of shit over here on the street. We're on the hill. <laughs> you know? Beautiful. Yeah. And that's and that's how we got our fucking name. And it's stuck. Through, Beautiful. Through Ramel's, yeah. yeah, through Ramel shouting out Cypress Hill with that we adopted because we were at actually Cypress Avenue. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, you wrote this song called High Times. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to quote a little bit from it. Others wanted the 40, but I wanted the weed. While everybody was running out, I was planting my seeds. Homegrown, backyard boogie, I'm still stoned. Got my weed plants taller than your telephone's corner. I couldn't remember when I could only get cess in those days. Uh, sorry for my interpretation, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it goes, I got my weed plant. My weed plant's taller than your telephone pole. <laughs> oh, pole. Okay. Yeah. The internet screws up again, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. I so, got to. I got to go. Have somebody go recheck all that. <laughs> but, but my question is: Were you growing already as a kid? Oh, yeah. Were you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, my my earliest experiences with cannabis. I mean, that I can remember when I was very young. My mother escaped from Cuba, and this was in. 68 and maybe a year later she met my father then you know then you know had me but when my mother escaped cuba and got here she had a cousin i mean a niece that was living here who was maybe three years younger than her i remember being in inglewood where my where my cousin lived and her and my mother were hanging out and i saw this little box with green shit in it scissors a roach clip what would what I would now know as fucking weed, paper, <laughs> uh, roach clip and zigzags and shit like that. It was scruffy from what I remember. And that was like my first, you know, my first introduction to it, watching them roll up. You know, this was like, you know, maybe 77. And then I had another um, experience with it with one of my cousins. Every now and then I'd go hang out with my cousin in West Covina and his father, who was a Vietnam veteran, he had purple hearts. He had, you know, he, he was distinguished. He had medals and all this. And he, he fucked up his back in the line of duty. And, and you know, somehow back then he got some sort of deal where he could use cannabis as his medicine for his back. This was way back in the 70s before all this all this that we're dealing with is happening in terms of legalization and stuff like that. But he had cannabis right there out in front of us. And we asked him what that was. And he goes, Hey, don't touch that. That's my medicine. So throughout, throughout, you know, my life and experiences with cannabis always, you know, it had always been called medicine. And then when I grew up, you know, <laughs> when I grew up a little bit and I was maybe 13, 14 years old, and I was running around with a bunch of little badasses. We would sometimes fence hop into people's yards and steal their weed plants and give them to uh, our friends' older brothers and shit like that. <laughs> so 
But when I first started growing myself, uh, it was probably in 1992. You know, I got my hands on some good seeds and I, I had a lot of people that I knew that grew cannabis and I would just get tips from them. And, and I started growing myself in my, in, in my backyard in pots. And from that time to now, occasionally I'll, I'll, I'll pop in an outdoor, you know, crop and shit and, and, you know, keep the skills up and, and whatnot and just see what happens, you know, with, with, with whatever genetics I happen to have had saved <laughs> from all the times that people would give me the, their so-called best, you know? Right. And, but your company, uh, Green Thumb, also grows, right? So oh, yeah. your company is sort of fully integrated, right? You do from the beginning to the, to the end product. Yes, for sure. We, we are very much vertical. Um, my partner and I, Kenji, I mean, when we started cultivating like um, hydro style back in, I'm going to say, 95, you know, we started in one of my garages, you know, that's, that's, that's how far back we went with it. But, you know, since then, because I mean, you know, there was nowhere else to grow. It's not like up, up in Northern California, you can go and pick a patch of forest and take your chances there. There's not that here in Southern Cali where it doesn't get patrolled. So we had to grow things indoors. So, you know, at that time we're growing into in garages and stuff like that. And, you know, we barely knew what the hell we were doing, but, you know, it was based off of hydroponic, you know, hydro style growing that we would come to know from Amsterdam and places like that, that had been growing that style for, for such a long time. But there was something within you that, made you want to do this because I'm sure you just could have bought it wherever oh, yeah. you didn't really need to grow your own. Yeah, there was always a passion. I mean, before we, we knew what to do with the hydro, you know, we were growing outdoors. I mean, I definitely was. And so, you know, when it, when it came to, to the indoor growing, my partner Kenji mastered that part because, I mean, realistically, I had, you know, by the time we started trying to grow with the hydro style, I was already touring. I was already on our third album and stuff with, with Cypress Hill. So there was really no time for me to be in a grow room and putting the hours in because you have to. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna get into that, it's a serious endeavor, man. You gotta be there. You can't you can't run it from somewhere else. But when it came time to, you know, you made your decision to you wanted to go into the business. Oh, yeah. I imagine you had options as well, just to put your name on a product because that would have been just an endorsement. That would have been enough. A lot of people would have been happy. Oh, no, yeah. But you, because of your experience and passion and personal connection, I guess, made you want to actually do it from the bottom up. Exactly. You know, and, and you know, we wanted to use our team, you know, the team that grew together. It's the team that we build the back of green thumb off of, you know, even when I was making, you know, the song back in 97, I believe it was, we were doing the shit way back then. And, and, and uh, we figured if we were going to go into this, this industry, we should go in with the team that has the same passion, the team we trust, the team, you know, that's more than a team, it's a family. So we figured, you know, we could do like a lot of others and, and just go license out our name and have other people produce our flower. But, you know, it would take a lot to, to quality check everybody and to make sure that everybody is, is producing clean quality flower. 
Now you have to. There's no there's no going around it. If you want that in the market, it has to be clean, tested and clean and all that. But we felt we had the passion, we had the love for it before it was all this. So we would just put all that energy into now, you know, bringing this into the legal market and, and a continuation of what we were doing just, you know, now with more knowledge, more technology, more options to do different things in, in the white market, which is the legal market, which was always the goal was to get our brand in, you know, into the legal cannabis market. Reach more people. Right. You mentioned touring and, you know, having to devote more time to the band, to, to Cypress Hills. And one of the aspects of your career that stands out for me as uh, because we talked about High Times and High Times Magazine, you stuck your neck out as being the first uh, big name artist to go out in public with their cannabis use in, in the early, right? This was like 91 when yeah. it wasn't legal at all and nobody was, you know, even thinking about it. So what went into that decision and were there, weren't you afraid of stigmatization and were there any repercussions from that decision? You know, we were just being ourselves. We said, if we were going to, you know, do something that we were going to be us and, and it was going to be a representation of us and, you know, us and our love for cannabis and our, our advocacy and all that stuff. That's who we were. We, we, we read high times magazines. We of course look at the centerfolds of, you know, the great strains that they would often highlight, but we were also reading a lot of the freedom fighter articles and stuff like that, you know, getting educated on, on, the whole cannabis culture and what was going on. And so when we were doing these songs, it, you know, they, they just came out. It wasn't like we, Oh, we need to do a a get high song or we need to do a legalized song. It just sort of happened. We never really in the brain, right? Yeah. So the fortunate part about it was that when high times heard about us and, you know, that we were doing songs about cannabis and stuff like that, like unapologetically, (laughs) you know, they embraced us. And we were the first hip hop group to don the cover of High Times Magazine. And it sort of opened up our world into the cannabis culture and into people who were like, you know, maybe rock, you know, they they may be more like rock music and, and classic rock and shit like that. It opened them up to us because here we are a hip hop group that was very much influenced by that classic rock that these people fuck with, you know, and, and here we are championing cannabis, you know, whether we knew we were championing cannabis or not, right. They embraced us and we embraced them. And we opened up the, we both opened up floodgates for each other. Like, you know, the hip hop community now was more on more up on what high times magazine was than, than they previously were and rock fans were now looking at hip-hop groups that were talking about cannabis in different light you know so it sort of was a great bridge and you know them putting us on the cover and then they put you know myself on the cover i believe that it did open up the doors for a lot of hip-hop groups to come through like red man and method man and snoop dogg and and the whiz and, and the rest that came through you know in the years that followed that and that was big because it showed two communities coming together and, and sort of not necessarily merging, but, you know, standing as one, if, you know. For, sharing for, a joint, sharing a joint together. 
yeah, you know, um, in the for, smoke the love box. Of, <laughs> for the love of cannabis culture, and a lot of them would become hip hop fans and, you know, be all about what hip hop culture was about, you know? So it was a great bridge, man. I'll never forget that, that they embraced us like that. And, you know, it was a great thing. Yeah, it was Steve Bloom, who you know, I'm sure, who Good was friend. at High Times. Yeah, yeah he... He's a friend of mine as well. We were he was been on my show and he talked about how you guys really opened the door also for just having you know coming out open and being in public about it in general and I believe that that has had a huge influence not just on the magazine and music but the world at large because it showed that we don't give a shit. You know, we're going to go and do what we think. And oh, yeah. it was, you know, it was illegal, right? So it wasn't like exactly, you know, that easy to, to make that statement. And it opened yeah. the doors for where we are today, you know, because it became so open and public that people could not really pretend anymore, you know, that something was wrong. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, because we approached it like we didn't hide it. You know, we never, we never hit it. Um, we always did it like we were supposed to be doing it like it's our right, <laughs> even though it wasn't, we, we, we acted like it was our right. Hey, we'd go into a club, we'd fucking blow that club up with smoke and no one would ask us to leave there. Oh shit. It's the Cypress Hill guys here. We'd be somewhere random and pull out and smoke. Nobody's saying shit. Everybody's like, Oh shit. Oh, okay. And then eventually, you know, we start smoking on stage, like, again, unapologetically, and no one is telling us a fucking thing. I mean, there was only one time where they asked us not to, and I did anyway, and they fined me, and it was a, like a ticket. It was in Denver, of all places, but this was, <laughs> this was in the 90s, so, you know, it, it was way back. But, you know, what I think, I'll say this, man, and I can credit the law enforcement that were at these shows with, with this restraint that they had, you know, they, they often just laughed it off. Cause I think a lot of them thought, yeah, who, who are they fucking hurting with this shit? You know, when, when they were told by their higher ups, don't let them smoke. They would, they had respect enough for us to come and say, Hey, you know what? We know you guys smoke, but we're asking you not to smoke tonight. Because if, if you do, we're going to have to take you to jail for it. And we don't want to have to take you to jail because, I mean, you know, we're fans, but this is coming from higher up. And that happened maybe twice in the 28 years we've been fucking touring. But, yeah, I mean, we did it and we didn't care. And, and um, you know, I think it allowed other people to freely do it like that and, and, and act like it was the norm and feel more than anything like it's the norm because it was to become the norm. I mean, hey, listen, we, in the question you asked uh, pre previously, you know, you asked like, did this do any harm to the, right. to our career or something like that? And, and I don't think it, it did any harm to us, but I'll say this, you know, a lot of opportunities didn't come our way because no, no corporate people uh, of any kind wanted to associate themselves with a group that was talking about something illegal you know, we're championing legalization and all that stuff and we're smoking in public and, you know, a lot of the song references and all that stuff. So they didn't want to necessarily, you know, put Cypress Hill in 
in these different situations that maybe other artists got that didn't necessarily do as well in terms of, you know, success in their career. You know what I mean? But we never got bitter about that. I mean, we knew what we were doing. I mean, listen, (laughs) we were talking about legalizing cannabis when it was still sort of taboo. So, you know, we knew opportunities weren't going to come our way. So we were never bitter about it, but we, we noticed it happening. Like certain things passing us by that we should have got over, you know, another artist or another group or whatever. But we, we never took it personal. We just thought, man, we just got to keep on doing what we do because we don't give a shit anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, and all those people in, in the corporate world sneaking their smokes and, and having to be in a closet and afraid to, to be in public. And, and it's a great thing, I have to say, you know, even for me, because I, I've had to live my life like that for a long time, to be in a moment now where that's not necessarily the case anymore. Uh, you know, the stigmatization, the prohibition, all of that changing so much. It's it's really a great feeling. And I, you know, want to thank you basically for having been, you know, one of the leaders to, to make that happen. The freedom, you know, we have, we should be free, right? We should be free to smoke. It's medicine. It's And now it's being recognized as medicine because... Uh, it's essential services, right? In uh, in times of this corona, where people are allowed to uh, go and and buy their medicine if they need it. Yeah, and you know, I I, I believe that was a, a good decision, a good decision because there's a lot of people that smoke medicinally and and not recreationally. You know that they they actually smoke for a reason because this is the medication that they prefer to take for their particular um, ailment. And they don't want to take pharmaceuticals because they're very much against pharmaceuticals and over-the-counter drugs and stuff like that. I mean, it would have been horrible for those people because you can't go to a supermarket or a liquor store or and buy cannabis <laughs> for, for any of that. You know, you can't go to a Rite Aid, a Walmart, a Walgreens, a CVS, uh, the ones they have in... Uh, New York, the Dwayne Reeds or whatever they're called. That's um, it, yeah. They don't sell cannabis. So like, you know. But they um, sell CBD the, now. <laughs> CBD, yeah. I mean, you can <laughs> you can try, but there's no, there's no flower version. There's, there's no, there's no, um, there's no concentrate versions available. Like if, I mean, obviously if your state doesn't have a, a, you know, dispensaries or stuff like that, you know, I could see, you know, the, you're, you're not winning that one. But if your state has dispensaries, they should be open as an essential business. And and not, like I said, not just for recreational, fuck that. I mean, for me, it's, it should be more medicinal based, if you ask me. Right, in which the, is, as you time. noted in your early, you know, from your early days, that's what you thought it was. So, you know, doesn't really change over time. I want to talk also for a few minutes about the Smoke Box, which I I love that show. I just think it's oh, thank you. so original. I sort of feel it's like James Corbin car ride karaoke, you know, on a whole different level. And yeah. he may have even stolen that idea from you. Who knows? <laughs> uh, it's possible. But, who knows? But what's the history of the Smoke Box? And you know, how did you you know come up with the concept? Well, the concept. It was based like, you know, on us back in the day, we'd come out of the studio and we'd play the music that we just mixed, but we'd be blazing up in the car, 
you know, listening to the music. And sometimes, you know, because some of us were very rebellious, we'd be smoking weed on the way to where, wherever the fuck we were going with the windows up, just boxing out. Very irresponsible of us, I might say. So that was, that was pretty much the premise of it was to sort of bring that type of, type of vibe back but in an interview form. But I'll say this, there, there was a, um, a guy named Dumbfounded, right? Actually Dumbfounded, right? And he was one of the battle rappers out there, really fucking dope. And he was doing a form of this called the hot box. I don't really know if they were smoking or not. It looked smoky and everything in there, but <laughs> you know, someone brought the idea and said, Hey, you know, you should do this form of interview right here because you can get people you know, that you know to come do these interviews with you. And it'd be cool to see you guys in a light like this, right? So I said, all right, well, you know, I'll try, I'll try one and, and see how it goes. So we thought this could be a vehicle that, you know, or, or this could be a show that we put up on to, to be real TV. So we, we tried it and it got traction on, on our YouTube um, which was the first thing I started before Be Real TV and before uh, all the other stuff we've been doing. And it, it did really well there, you know, and it seemed like a natural place for me to go. I mean, I could do it in the studio, but I thought the car was more compelling because, you know, we could totally do like, you know, one of those uh, Cheech and Chong style smoke boxes right. where it's just totally thick. And we got <laughs> there with that, with uh a few of them with the Jungle Boys, with DNA Genetics, with uh, Wiz Khalifa. It was a fun way to, you know, have a conversation more than an interview because, I mean, you know, we, we had been tr trying to do interviews. I mean, we had not tried. We'd done interviews on another format before we had started doing the smoke box. And it, it was cool, but it was just kind of plain. And I figured, you know, fuck it. Let me, let me try it in the car. And, uh, you know, and, and see how it goes. And it, it felt more like a conversation than an interview. It felt more natural. So, you know, we started doing those consistently and, and they picked up and, and became a thing. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I've, I've, off, I've long had this idea that somebody should do a show. I mean, you're kind of doing it, but, you know, more in a talk show format of multiple guests, like a, a TV style, where people have the option of smoking. You don't have to, right? But I think it's it's a great conversation starter, and it's it, it just creates a, a great conversation when people are sharing and smoking, as opposed to like the stiff other type of situation that's usually out there. And oh, yeah. As you said, it's not an interview, it's a conversation. And uh, it just seems like perfect for for ex expanding the concept. Yeah, you know, we, we, we felt like people would be looser in that way, you know. And before we used to just take people that only smoked, you know. We wouldn't take anybody that didn't smoke in the car because in the comment section, they'll always give it to people who don't smoke. You know, if, yeah. if, you, <laughs> if you start off, not having the joint in your hand and you don't ever smoke, they are totally cool with that, you know, because that they understand that you're not a smoker and you're supporting just by being in, in the car. Like we've had um, my friend, Noel G, who is an actor. He's been in several movies. One of the biggest was training day, but he's been in a lot, a lot of movies. And, uh, you know, he previously, he, he was, he was a weed smoker. And, and as of late, you know, he slowed down and then he eventually stopped. 
but he wanted to come and sit inside the smoke box and just, you know, do the, do the interview. And he thought it would be a trip for him to be like acting like he was, you know, tripping out because he hadn't smoked in so long and we're smoking all this weed in front of him. And, and, you know, it was pretty funny. It was a good box, but get the contact high. Yeah. And, you know, people were more understanding, you know, because they understood, okay, he's not a smoker. He's not going to smoke, but he's in here. So, you know, it becomes more about like how long can they hang before they catch a contact, you know, so people are entertained by that. But yeah. So, you know, as of late, we've been taking, taking in people that wanted to, to come in the box, but not necessarily smoke. But that was one of the reasons we actually created the Dr. Green Thumb podcast. So if they, they couldn't do the smoke box, if they wouldn't, if they didn't even want to be in the car, you know, with the smoke accumulating, oh, I see. <laughs> we could do the podcast, you know, in a big room and, you know, they wouldn't be trapped in with the smoke. Who would be your, your guest that you would w- most want to have on that, uh, on that show? What, on the smoke box? Yeah. There's a list, right? There's yeah. Woody Harrelson. Who obviously. just quit, apparently, you know. Yeah, yeah, he quit some, maybe sometime last year, I think. I don't know if he's back smoking again, but, you know, I, I think I, he goes on and off. Um, but Woody Harrelson, Willie Nelson, he, he did stop smoking. He only does edibles now. But, you know, for a time, we definitely wanted Willie Nelson. And if he just wanted to sit in there and eat edibles while we smoke, we would love to have him in doing that we wanted seth rogan we wanted rihanna oh beautiful yeah you'll get him miley cyrus when she was uh blazing out but i don't think she's blazing out anymore but you know we we still have we still have a big wish list bruce willis we'd love to have bruce willis do you feel like it's changed in Hollywood and, you know, you're part of the Hollywood scene now that people are much more open, even though, you know, may not be that great for their career? I don't think people look at me like that. Um, I think that I have a lot of friends out there that, um, you know, we, we have a mutual respect. So they see what I'm doing. So they're willing to come down in spite of maybe their publicist telling them not to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I would imagine that a, a lot of these folks, they got big checks on the line from like Disney and, and, and big companies like that. And they don't want to fuck that up. So, you know, to be seen in, in the smoke box would not <laughs> be conducive to the contract, right? So, yeah. So I, I would never want to put anybody's financial... So there is, there, there's still a stigma then, you know, because if they were drinking, nobody would complain, right? If they were sitting in a... right another situation yeah i just be- i i believe it's it's not necessarily all of of the business i just believe it's certain companies you know like disney i mean you know because they're it's disney kids, so yeah it's kids so when you look at it like that you have to understand anyone with a disney contract is not going to come do <laughs> our show you know what i mean <laughs> but, but fortunately you know um yeah you know we ha- we have we do have some outreach that that people do want to come do these shows with us. And some in some cases, they they call us and say, "Hey, we'd like to get in the smoke box." And we're like, sure, let's do it. Let's do it. I want to talk for a minute, also, before I'm going to let you go about the Doctor Green Thumb dispensaries. I know you're in an expansion mode now. You're opening three uh, other locations, including a consumption lounge. So what is the vision of, of the company at this point? Where do you think you'll be in like 10 or years from now? 
Well, you know, we want to be in, in all the other states that, that um, allow dispensaries, whether it's uh, medical or recreational or a combination of both. And we want to get the brand out there. We just want to continue to expand and, you know, eventually also go overseas into places like Spain and in the other uh, places that are now embracing legalization, if they're going to open up retail shops, you know, we'd like to be in those, those places too. So we, we, you know, we just want to take the brand worldwide, you know, once all this craziness blows over. <laughs> it's going to be expensive though. And I know mostly you're self-financed at this point. So do you think at some point you'll hook up with one of the bigger companies? I'm going to try not to as much as possible, you know, because the way we've been doing it is finding the right partners to open up these shops with instead of taking on the whole financial burden ourselves. You know, it's, it's better to work in a group than to, to try and be by yourself. But that's a group of people that you've worked with for a long time. They have the same passions. They have the same, you know, um, goals in terms of where they see the brand but everybody is non-corporate everybody it's a collective of independent people you know building the brand rather than going to corporations for 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 the money because realistically you know a lot of people don't realize if you get like a bunch of small business owners that are are moderately successful and you put that money together as a group that's a lot stronger and you know we could move you know without involving corporate money at that point if you do things like that and fortunately we've been in that situation that we we haven't had to to go that route so you know if it if it were to come to an opportunity and let's just say you know in spain or somewhere to open up a shop we would find an independent biz business man over there or you know whatever group over there and try to figure something out with them as opposed to us going over there and opening it all ourselves i mean the red tape we'd go through trying to do that would be ridiculous yeah and at the same time you're launching a partnership with g-pen and also cannabis inspired beer with sweetwater brewing yeah it's called insane og and so is that kind of, is that connected or is it a side project? How would you describe those relationships? Oh, with G-Pen, we've had a relationship with them for a long time. It was just never really official up until now. And, and now that we have the, the Green Thumb stores open, it totally made sense for us to do a product line with them based on the Green, Green Thumb and G-Pen brand combined. And, and uh, so now we're launching that off and, you know, it's been a long time coming, so we felt that was like a, a, a you know, a no-brainer to 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 do with them because they're the best in game, and and uh, we definitely wanted to be in collaboration with them if we were going to do a pen of any sort. So you know, it just made sense for us to to finally lock that in. So those will be at all our our retail outlets and and other chains from from other stores and stuff like that. So. Uh, that was a that was an easy one, and and with the sweet water brew, um, it's it's uh, a new relationship, but I think it's a really fucking good one, man. You know, um, people have been giving us great feedback on on the beer, in spite of all all the stuff that's going on. You know, right right before it all happened, I mean, the feedback was just, just that was coming back was was amazing. So it'll be long term, and we'll we'll come up with different flavors 
based off of the terpenes of of the uh, different uh, strains that that we have in our our catalog for insane like uh we we had talked about uh doing maybe our california cherry line you know as the next one eventually who knows when that'll happen you know that's all tentative yeah well, I can't wait to try it. One final question, the consumption lounge. How is that going to look and feel and sound? It will be ready upon opening of this Cathedral City shop that's uh, opening up on April 11th. But it's a soft launch. We're not doing a, a, a normal grand opening because obviously, you know, <laughs> we cannot do that right now. So we're doing a soft launch, just letting people know that the shop is opening and the medicine is available. And when we are able to do a, a real grand opening style launch, we'll do that. And for now, the lounge is, it'll be ready, but you know we won't have it open to the public until the shelter at home is, is uh, lifted. All right. Well, thank you very much. Be real. It's been a real pleasure. You've done so much in so many spaces so beautifully. Thank you for being on my show. Hey, thank you for having me, man. It was it was a great time. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at shopburb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. <laughs>